Hi, guys. Welcome back to Into the Light, a different life story, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day to do some housekeeping first. Yay! And that means I ask you to push, push that subscribe button down there and tell your friends about this show because we've got so many fantastic guests here on our show. Today I'm recording uh, show 181. So there are already 180 beautiful souls that came onto my show and shared often very intimate and powerful stories that showed their change, their transformation. And it is so beautiful because these people all have learned so much and are giving it for free to you. You'd be stupid not to subscribe. Come on, go down there right now. Click. Cool. So now that is out of the way. So I have got another guest with me today, Mary Beth Chunky. And I was thinking, how do I introduce her? Because she is such a powerhouse of a woman. She is a trailblazer, uh, both in her own life, as well as actually for women out there. And, and she has gone where few women have gone before. And I'm not talking <laughs> moon, okay? I'm talking, I'm talking actually secret service here. And yes, that secret service in the United States. And but I was joking, half joking with her because I was far more interested in the in the story of her growth rather than the obvious. Oh well, did you shoot a few people or kind of a thing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you would what you would go down that route for. No, 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 no. So one way or the other, this is going to be an exciting, exciting interview. So Mary Beth Jenke, uh, welcome to my show. Hey, Stefan, thank you so much for having me. We've already had a great conversation even before we started recording, so thank you. And it is, it's beautiful to have you on the show because it is, uh, it is reading your book, The Protector, uh, is, was quite an eye-opener for me. And mm. here, there are some books which are purely written more or less for entertainment. Um, mm. And you know exactly, like many special forces memoirs, so to speak, you know exactly mm. that they have been word for word approved by the UK military or by mm -hmm. etc. So it's it's more mm -hmm. or less a, a prospectus, an advertisement for the for the special forces. <laughs> and you think, yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, come on. Um, so your book was not like that. Because when you wrote this book, you were you already in a very different phase of your life when you moved on Correct. from the Secret Service. So therefore, you there was quite a bit more balance in your book. So I'm already mm. making advertisements for for the protector <laughs> awesome <laughs> well exactly awesome. it's a fantastic book guys read it because it shows you the path of a young woman maturing and not letting any hurdles get in her way and i think maybe we should start with that tell us you as a younger girl you as a teenager hmm. um how was your life as a teenager did you think i will go well, into the secret service sure mum. That's what I do. Right. So first of all, I'm from a suburb of Chicago, and I am one of seven children. And I say all that uh, more of the one of seven children because I believe birth order really plays a role of what I did as a career and who I've become as a person. And of so I'm we have a brother. He was first and then six girls. And 
the first five of us are literally one year apart. So when I was a first year in high school, I had a sister in the second year and the third year and the fourth year. So four girls getting ready for high school um, was a little crazy. And every time I walked into a classroom from the very first was always my maiden name is Wilkes. And so they'd say, oh, another Wilkes. Are you as smart as your siblings? And I'd be like, no, but I'm cuter or no, but I'm funnier or no, but something that I thought was really um, clever. And um, as right before that, my junior, it was my junior year of high school. That's right. When I decided what I wanted to do with my life, I took what's called an elective. It was not a normal class. It was called criminal law. And one day the teacher was talking about the difference between a federal law enforcement officer, a local police officer, a state cop, all these different levels of law enforcement. And I was like, oh my God, I know what I'm going to do with my life. And I went home and told my parents I was going to be an FBI agent. And uh, my dad said, oh, that's interesting because a man named Marlon Johnson works in my office as another executive vice president, but he's in operations. So why don't you come meet him? So it turned out that it, this became a tradition when I was in high school that I would go downtown to have lunch with my father. But prior to having lunch with my father, I would meet up with Marlon Johnson, who used to run the Chicago field office of the FBI. And we would chat. And any questions I had, he answered for me. And if he couldn't, He'd press the speakerphone, he'd call the Chicago field office of the FBI, and he'd say, I have this young lady here with me, and she has some questions. She's going to be an agent. She's going to be amazing. She has a question that I can't answer. Can you answer it for her? So it became like way more real for me and like doable, uh, you know, just knowing that this, you know, it just seems so human. And uh, so I studied criminal justice in college at a university called Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. And just knowing that that's what I wanted to do. But everybody that does what I did does not necessarily study criminal justice. You don't have to. Um, but that's what interested me. And I loved having the education um, in that. So that's kind of my road educationally. And when I graduated college, I went to live in Spain for another few years. What happened was I had done a program my junior year for a semester in, a, in Seville, Spain. And I thought it was so amazing. But I also realized that, boy, just as you start to get good at language, you realize how much you don't know. And so oh, yeah. I said to my parents, after I graduated, I said, OK, I'm, I'm, I'll get a job. But first, I'm going to go spend a few more months in Spain because I want to be more bilingual. Well, a few more months ended up being three years. And, <laughs> and so uh, I spent every single penny on travel. And then when I came back to the United States, that's when I put in my application to the United States Secret Service and the DEA. And then but I took a, a job. There, sure, uh, but I'll stop you there because there's already a, a key ingredient in your, in your spreading of wings. Suddenly you were no longer the sister of or the daughter of. Suddenly you were alone living in a different country, which is a huge Correct. step. I mean, that is, talk about growth, talk about jumping yeah. into the deep end. And yeah, it was amazing. How beautiful is that? I and mean, that for sure gave you the self-confidence because, you know, after a few months, you either run home uh, because you're so frustrated or homesick, et cetera, or you actually have toughened the hardest bit out. And mm -hmm. now you start to find yourself. So there you were doing all those beautiful things that you do in Spain. And that yeah, would have been the yeah. 80s, 80s thereabouts. Um, 
87 when I graduated college. So yeah, 87 to go. 90. There you go. Yeah. 87. See, I, actually, the, the summer of 87, 89, uh, I spent in Spain as well. Um, oh, come on. And, yeah. So we had some huh. some fantastic times there. And knowing the 80s, ah, uh, Booze was there. Women were there. And women went there to meet men, and men went there to meet mm. women. So yeah, you, you do ying, you do things that you're that you're doing when you're a younger person, including maybe having a joint or two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I love it. I love it, you guys. Know I was. I love, you know I was. Of course, I was because I read your book, and yes. that is the, the most beautiful story. There, it's, here's a young woman who is spreading her wings, and of course, she is driving in the '80s a joint in Spain. How much more romantic with a sunset could you get, for Christ's sake? <laughs> and then, though, what strikes me so beautifully is that you were honest. So when it came to the FBI having a look at your applications, suddenly they say, thank you very much, Mary Beth, but go away. <laughs> yeah. And just to clarify for your listeners, Stefan, is it wasn't, they would have allowed marijuana, but because the majority of um, pot, whatever that we are smoking in Spain, it was uh, uh, also course. known as hash. Of course. of course. Chocolate. So that was the problem is in our country, they consider that a hard drug, not like uh, marijuana. So uh, that's why the FBI was like, yeah, no. And I was uh, like, but it was legal. It yeah. was legal. Why? What's? I didn't do anything illegal, yeah. you know, but, and I even tried to appeal that, as you know, in the book yeah. um, and it didn't fly. And then a few years later, when I came back from living in Spain, that's when I applied to the DEA and the secret service and you know, the rest of that story. Indeed. And luckily, uh, they had a bit of a different take there and actually allowed you to become the woman that you were destined to be. And that is just an amazing thing. But there is this point of rejection. There's this point of a young woman who has had her mindset, who has been there with all the focus, with all the reality you were living it in your mind already. You were already an FBI agent. And that was at my well, early 20s now when mm -hmm, they said, mm -hmm. by the way, no. Mm -hmm. How did that feel? And how did you deal with those feelings? Yeah. When I learned about the FBI, I was living in Spain still because I filled out an application when I was living in Spain, but home visiting my parents. And mm -hmm. I was actually applying earlier than is allowed because the FBI requires that you have at least three years out of undergraduate college. And so I was trying to get in through the language program and I had passed all the language tests. And when my dad called me, I was crushed. I was like, okay, dad, like, I, I know I like, what, what was there to say? Hmm. You know? And I was just like, I'm sure as is typical for me, I probably went for a really long run. <laughs> <laughs> that was like my yeah. way to process anything and just get, you know, if I was pissed off, if I was anything, it just really helped me process. And Seville such a beautiful place that, mm. you know, when you have that and you have something crappy happen like that, um, I was like, huh, well, I'm living in Spain. You know, we'll see what happens when I move back to the United States, which I did a couple of years later. And I applied, um, you know, to two different agencies. Mm. 
And, um, you know, I did get accepted. Well, I'm sure I would have got accepted to the DEA as well because they were pretty much neck and neck with how they were going in the process. But mm. I went with whoever called me first, which was the Secret Service. And it is that shows already your determination and your, 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 I'm so, let's rephrase that. I'm really, really pleased for your addiction to running. Uh, because this is had you been uh more into tapas and uh and red wine mm. then this could have led actually to a very different different kind True. of um thing but here you were you had actually from the word go a very healthy uh, coping mechanism and you took Indeed. action you took action mm -hmm. to counterbalance the negative emotions. And that mm -hmm. is so beautiful. That's something that many of us addicts or, or many of us mm. people who have gone through depression only learn afterwards that the sure. work-life balance is so important. It's the it's the mm -hmm. crucial thing to, to have to have this balance. And most of us have no idea. We couldn't even write the word balance if our life depended mm. on it. Certainly not okay. live it. And there you are. So you already okay. had that had that in your favor, but you also had this this moral this moral power there. And that was the other thing that struck me reading your book, because mm -hmm. at at some stage people were sort of saying, "Okay, hang on, no, there might be other ways how we get around it and how we can deal with things." Um, the but we but let's come to that a bit later because that actually okay. came later in your story might as well fall uh fall into the chronological kind of sequence there you had you then came back to the united states and started uh in serious earning a little bit of money and then suddenly the the, the call came and you, you thought oh god yeah Oh. Yeah, but you know, that was interesting too, Stefan, because when I applied, they said, listen, you've lived overseas, you've tried, I mean, I had that whole long list of places I had traveled. So you need to expect to wait about two years to oh, be yeah, hired, because right. this is going to take us a while. And on one trip, so I was working for an organization called the Center for Democracy in Washington, D.C., And I was working in Latin America and Central America doing election observations. And I became a Central Latin American expert because my I was bilingual in Spanish. And as I was coming back from El Salvador through Miami, I was spending the weekend there. I called, you know, this was pre-cell phone. So I called the desk of my office and I said, hey, any messages? And she's like, yeah, agent so-and-so called you from the Secret Service. And I was like, uh, you know, I wonder what they need now, you know, like, because there's yeah. so much paperwork, so many uh, hoops to jump through. And I remember he picks up the phone as if he knew it was me. And he's like, hi, Mary Beth. And I was like, hi. And he goes, and he starts laughing and he goes, this is agent whoever. And I'm calling to offer you a job as a special agent with the Secret Service. And I literally almost fell off my bed because it was only about eight and a half, nine months into the process. So that was like the last call I expected. I was still like thinking, I love my job. I'll be doing this for at least two years while they get me through the hoops. And um, we negotiated a start date and I was freaking out. I was like, I celebrated in Miami that night for sure. Oh, how yeah. beautiful is that? <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. It was, and, and I got to tell you, My, and no one's ever said this to me, but I can only imagine that there were two very key reasons that they zipped my application through. One is I'm a female. 
they hire us, but they can't keep us because we leave to get married. We leave to have babies. We leave to get something more stable. Yeah. Two, I'm, I was bilingual and they need bilingual agents in the Secret Service. So I think those were two reasons they really zipped me through. That stunned me, actually, that aspect that a different language ability was suddenly putting you so much ahead of the um, of the pack uh, that is behind you. Yes. And I, I, I thought for crying out loud, the United States is changing <laughs> in its in its makeup. I mean, there's are there any more pure whites actually really in America? Right. It's all right. the melting pot uh, that is there. And it's beautiful. So actually, if you think about it, there should be no racism whatsoever because everyone right. is mingling. Well, everybody's uh, mingling. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So they, yeah. that's that's the frustrating thing for me to see in daily politics in, in the United States. Um, but at the same token, to realize how uh, well, how white really the uh, the Secret Service was at that time. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if mm -hmm. it is still the, the case today, and that probably uh, extrapolates to other agencies that there was this this probably predominance of uh, probably whites. I, I call it whites because uh, obviously, if you came from another country, you would be bilingual, which probably means that also your your skin color. And tone might be a bit different. So um, sure. has that changed? Yes. Um, I would say that in federal law enforcement, like I think there's a lot more color in local law enforcement, say like at the city level. Yeah. yeah. Uh, federal, yes. Uh, again, it's still very hard to keep us. It was about 9% women when I was in. So at the time there were 2,000 women Sorry, 2,000 agents, yeah. 180 women. Now, yeah. there I believe there's 3,200 agents, and there's somewhere around 13% female. Right. Uh, I think because in my era, we were still shifting to women really digging into career and motherhood. You know, mm. we were we were mm. advanced, but we weren't quite as advanced as this, as this generation now as mm. being able to say, no, we'll figure it out, but I'm going to have a career and I'm going to stay longer. And there have been many more women that have gotten to higher levels because they've stayed longer. Um, there was even a female that was the head of the Secret Service, but not for long, because during her time, there was a huge scandal and it just wasn't handled so great. But it's all to say that somebody was in there long enough to become director. Becoming a Secret Service agent sounds glamorous. And sounds, ooh, <laughs> there she goes, yeah. yeah. And he, she's going along with little martinis, shaken, not stirred. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think the reality of being a Secret Service agent is actually not really so glamorous, is it? <laughs> it's not. I mean, there are there are parts of it that certainly are. Um, to this day, I got to tell you, Stefan. Like to this day. If someone learns that I've been a Secret Service agent, it's I get mixed, you know, oh, I didn't even know there were women or what? Like, how did you do that? But back then, and I always encourage people, they're like, well, you know, if it's that boring, like, why are you telling me to become a Secret Service agent? I said, you have to you have to live your own path. And there's lots of different agencies. And so for me, you know, I remember and I think I wrote about it in my book is this one day that I was guarding the elevator in the basement of a hotel and I was under George Bush Sr. Uh, this was 1992. 
And I was so bored. I was just like, you know, like tapping my feet, kind of like little pacing, but not too much because you have a post and you have, you know, you got to have your view of everything around you, everything coming, going, coming, going, coming, going. Next thing I know, the elevator bings, the doors open and out walks the advance agent, George Bush, all of his agent and his entourage. And I was like, in my head, I acted like no big deal. And I, I saw some agent look over his shoulder and kind of wink at me. They didn't tell me because they didn't have to. The agents that are right around the president, which is called PPD, Presidential Protection Detail, they have their own radio um, channel that they're talking on. They aren't on the same one as our middle ring of um, security. So when they came out, it was like, what a reminder that was of when you think a job is boring and unimportant, you never know what could happen. And I just remember thinking, holy shit, like I, what I did today mattered, you know? And then you just realize that, you know, the moral of the job is the bad guy only has to be on once, whereas we have to be on all the time. I'm an anesthetist. My yes. job is described as hours of boredom, moments of terror. And that is, I think we both have lived this life for a long time. And mm -hmm. uh, it is it is quite a unique thing because it is it's like like flying an aeroplane, the taking off, sure. very exciting. You're on eight hours cruising altitude. And then the landing again is a bit exciting. But most of the time, everything is routine. But you can't just go to sleep. You can't just lie in a corner, wake me up if something happens kind of thing. Um, right. But you actually have to be alert. How mm -hmm. did you do that? I've got my tricks, but I, I want to learn from, yeah. from the master. Because if you're standing there eight hours and how did it work with toilet breaks, for example? Yeah, so they do they do rotate us. Like, for right. example, um, you know, different places I can remember serving posts, they, you know, the supervisor for the shift would come over and say, Hey, Wilkes, you need a push. That means, mm -hmm. you know, do you need a break? Do you need, yeah. we would be pushed every hour or two anyway, meaning nice. you go from like post to post to post, but did you need a break? Do you need to go to the bathroom? You need something to drink. Okay. Stand down for 30 minutes, you know, go to the break room, go get something to eat, drink, sit down for a little bit, you know, nice. go to the bathroom. Nice. Nice. So they do, they're smart that way. You know, the government is not always the best with their resources and how they allocate them. And in that way, they know that you can't, you, it's kind of like, you know, these, these servants, the, the dogs that are sniffing for bombs, they're only, they're only worth a crap for X number of hours. You can't work those dogs and then expect them to be, you know, without giving on, on doing what they're doing without giving them a break. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of, you know, I never remember thinking, Dear God, why isn't somebody pushing me? I need a break. I remember it being fair. How beautiful is that? And yeah, no, it's gu excellent. Guys out there, if you're listening to that, when was the last time that happened in your job? When was the last yeah. time that you asked yourself, hey, it's an hour, hour and a half now. Am I still as productive? Probably not. Mm. Could you do with a stretch, with a five minutes toilet break in which you just break up the monotony or whatever you have been doing and get back mm -hmm. to it? Is that not a not something that maybe we all could could actually? That's true. You know? And I do the same thing, and it, it it feels weird in my job. So I work with anesthetic technicians. So we are sort of a, a partners in crime, 
And I know exactly around about 10, I make a point of actually having a little break, going to the toilet mm. if I need to or not need to. So they, mm -hmm. they watch out for my patient or during that time. Um, so, but I have that little break. I have that little break at lunchtime, a little break at two, etc. And I try to, to maintain my vigilance by doing exactly that. Again, we're talking balance. We're talking mm -hmm. about, about you getting your shit together by actually knowing what is happening inside of you. There's no way that you can be switched on all the time, there and then, 24 yep. hours. It is, that's murder, you can't do that. Um, yet we don't accept it in our own lives. That's where we, we think we are supermen and superwomen and just trying mm -hmm. work, 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 work. And then we're getting annoyed with ourselves that our to-do list of about 300 things that you wanted to get done that day, if you only ticked off 20, you're a bloody failure. <laughs> so maybe we need to work on that a little bit. <laughs> yes, yes. How hard we are on ourselves, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Was there, was there actually much psychology training at that time in the Secret Service? Not the way they called it. I'm sure it was woven in through things like defensive tactics yeah. and the driving, the mentality behind why are we doing these things? Why is learning motorcade operations so important? Well, because you're the most vulnerable when you're in a vehicle, particularly what they call a choke point, mm. right? So it's becoming more vigilant you're vigilant anyway, but then you realize, say, if you that's why if you've ever experienced being stopped in traffic because and for hours because a president or a prime minister or a, 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 any type of number one or two, they block traffic for hours sometimes so that they can move through a city without ever stopping because we always say in speed, their safety. So, um, you know, the psychology comes in and understanding why we're doing what we're doing and not just taking that for granted. Like, oh, they told me I need to learn this, so I will learn this. I'm a robot. You know, so we we they were good about explaining the whys and the purpose so that we just weren't doing mindless activities and spending hour after hour after hour training. So I always appreciated that, particularly the defensive tactics when we were learning how to use a baton, when we were doing hand to hand, when we were, you know, getting bounced around on the mats, you kind of got to understand you know, and then you have two and three and four people coming at you because you just never know when you might encounter that in real life. So make the mistakes here so that you don't make them out there. Perfect. And that's that's yeah. absolutely that's that's how I train juniors uh, in in my profession. Um, either might it be uh, younger nurses or might it be younger anesthetists um, that mm -hmm. we actually create scenarios and courses where they go through things and. I want them to make mistakes. I don't want to have mm -hmm. a stellar performance because sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. And again, that is so important. Make mistakes so true, Stefan. And, and, and learn from them. And it's those mistakes that will never leave you. These little mental scars where you think, oh shit, how, <laughs> how could I do that? But you did yeah, it in a safe oh, yeah. environment. And that is the important mm -hmm. bit. You can now go out there and think, okay, this is a similar situation. No, this time I will not react like that to the environment or whatever is coming Indeed. so 
what were let me come back to it out of out of interest it is one thing for me to look after an anesthetic because in between uh, after a patient whilst they are asleep because even if it is a six hour anesthetic uh, i can choke with my technician i can 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 i don't know we are talking we're doing all kind of things you can't do that when you're standing there so how do you distract yourself in a such a way yeah. that your vigilance still stays but your mind doesn't go insane. Yeah. How do you do that? Um, well, I can only speak for me. I can't speak for everybody else. But first of all, back then, I was a huge runner. And if I didn't get my run in pretty much, you know, five days a week-ish, maybe more, or at least hit the gym. I was hitting the gym probably seven days a week. But, you know, that kept me for me, that kept me really focused. It processed so much for me. Like if you give me my coffee and you give me my workout on any given day, including today at age 56, I will work to whatever time you want me to, but I need those two things. Otherwise you're going to, I'm going to become really grumpy. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> to, to whatever tribe thought that it's a good idea to throw a few weird looking beans into, into the fire and then grind it down. You are my heroes. Amen. Oh, seriously. I mean, there's nothing better. And if, if I was ever told that I couldn't drink coffee anymore, I'd be like, yeah, no. I don't care. I'm going to do that. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. No, that's, that's, I mean, amazing. You you lived a, a life full of boredom, but also full of excitement because obviously you constantly are changing your roles because there is this, you're not only allocated to one person always, as you said, mm -hmm. you're shifted around. So there's a constant actually change in the environment, change in duties, change in the external factors that are coming in there. Sure. But and that also helped me with like, let's say I was on a new post. So for the next hour, I would play these games called what if games. Hmm. What if somebody comes around the corner? What if it's two guys with two weapons? You know what I would do the what and I still do the what if game. Hmm. I am always, especially when I'm in an elevator, I always go to the back corner. And I'm like, well, what if that guy pulls a gun? What if he pulls a knife? What if he tries to punch me? What if he yeah. tries to, I mean, I am still playing the what if game at, yeah. at this many years later. Was there ever a time in your life when you were, when you perceived your own life in peril, in absolute mortal danger, when you were in your younger years prior to the secret service? Oh, um, not that I'm remembering. I mean, I think I thought I was invincible. So for me to have really thought I was in danger, <laughs> I still kind of think I'm invincible. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, Ovaries yeah. the size of Chicago. I like that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, not that I'm remembering, but it's not to say like there, right. I had no, no major car accidents when I was yeah. younger. Those happened yeah. later. Yeah. Uh, but but definitely in some of my missions post Secret yeah. Service. Oh, no doubt about that. No, I was thinking. Yeah. Uh, I, with hindsight, I'm very good in in trauma management or in in emergency management, and that's what I've been teaching on courses. And it really, on about two years ago, I realized that I had quite a decent dose of PTSD from an assault mm. that I had when I was thirteen, mm. fourteen. So. Um, I hadn't even healed up proper when I was starting to to train martial arts with the police sports club in in my hometown, 
And from then wow. on, I went through quite a dark period with martial arts. And then girls came along four years later. I was at university and I realized that the gang leader who had sworn to kill me, he would never find me. So, you know, I, I could relax a little bit. Wow. But, wow. but, but, but my PTSD never left me. And I actually didn't know that I had it. So here I was hypervigilant, constantly looking around me, constantly being there, yes. which is great as a doctor. Well, you, you, you pick things up. You don't get caught out. Great. It's not so great as a man because four o'clock in the morning, ping, you're wide awake and remember everything that you did wrong over the last 30 years. That's yep. great. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. Well, exactly. So the, the PTSD was my friend and a, a quite a big foe until I actually realized what was going on. It was not long okay. ago. So therefore I was asking, is there a similar thing that allowed you to be more receptive to your environment because you were you knew that you had to be on a deep 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 down level because otherwise there might be a risk that you actually now die kind of a thing so yeah. there was not not a triggering event anywhere that you could at least identify not really i mean i feel like i mean i i as a kid again being part of a big family my mom is a very stoic woman and I was very, all of my siblings and I were all very athletic. And I'm sharing this because I was very much a tomboy, um, always sort of challenging the guys in sports and um, thinking I was better than them. Um, and so I feel like I had a lot of my mom and me in the sense of being stoic, but very high level of self-pride. Give me a challenge, bring a guy on that thinks he's better than me. I'll whip him right off the court, right? Or at least kill myself trying. Um, so I feel like a lot of that, like uh -huh. it developed my motto of never let him see you sweat. Yeah. I could have been scared to death of the guy that like stepped across, you know, to, to play me. But I was like, I'm never going to let him see that I'm nervous. And so that also plays a role in the later missions that I took on as a international protection agent. Because, and I've said this to people, you guys, it doesn't mean I wasn't scared. I just did it scared. That and is, stop there, stop there and repeat that sentence. I did it scared. And that is such a powerful, powerful statement. I mm -hmm. Do you allow yourself a few seconds of terror to wash over you when there's suddenly something oh. happening and you have the time? Do you allow that or... Or how does your it's body happening, respond? but I'm like, oh, holy shit, you can't stop. you got to move forward. You Absolutely. cannot, you know, you don't know what might be coming at you. Absolutely. It might not be till later or the, you know, when I, the end of the day and you sit down on your bed and you're like, exactly. what happened today? You exactly. know? And again, I got to say, I processed a lot of it during my runs. Huh. There you go. And I'm like, would I do it differently? Would I do anything, whatever? Like, why did right. that happen? Or should I have done or I really killed that. I did a great job. Like, I, where did I get that from? Like, how did I think so quickly on my mm. feet? Or, you know, I made my mistakes for sure. But thank God they weren't life threatening mm. or life taking. It's in, in my work, I, there is not a guy within seven feet that suddenly pulls a blade and tries to gut me. Um, so therefore my, my immediate reactions, the, the fraction of a second reactions don't mm. often occur. Um, it is more the sudden realization or a sudden phone call. Could you please come to the emergency department? We're really struggling here with a little newborn that has whatever. Mm. And 
uh, a scenario that scares the living daylights out of me. And I would say, sure, I'm on my way. And then there would be this, oh my God. So the adrenaline is building up and there's this wave sometimes of anxiety and fear and terror just there. Oh my God, a little bit of imposter syndrome. Doesn't matter how many times you put a little tube into a newborn, um, it it still scares the living daylight out of you, that kind of stuff. And I made a point later on after rehab, after getting my shit sorted, to actually accept it, that it is part of me, that is my body trying to run the fight and flight. And you feel Mm. your your skin going prickly because the adrenaline rushes through it. And I feel my heart raising, I feel my mouth going dry, all that kind of stuff. Um, And I allow myself that. And I say, huh, okay, that's how I feel, terror, good. Hello, Tara. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Old friend of mine. Yeah, I know you well. That's right. Cool. So now, yeah. fuck off. I don't need you right now. Yeah. Um, but I actually yeah. accept it as part and parcel. So these, these, these tiny mini anxiety attacks, as you might call them, I, I have them free, or had them far more frequently. Nowadays, I'm a bit better, but I still, I still experience them. And I these waves sure. of, of anxiety that is. Um, I yeah. think it shows that you're human. I agree. I agree. Uh, and that is beautiful. And that is that is the skill that we need to do uh, to teach each other that, hey, remember, you are human. <laughs> so it's okay to be to be full of fear, to be to be anxious, to be to feel all these emotions mm-hmm. that maybe you don't necessarily like. Um, but they are there. And they're like a wave in the ocean. You, you, sure. you might hate that wave and you can shout at that wave, but the wave will still come. <laughs> so like it or it's lump it. It's got to come. Well, that's right. So that is, uh, I mean, you had the training and to a certain degree, you were able to do to deal with a lot of situations um, because you had the training. But there were still moments um, down the line, later in the book, you describe your work in in South America and and other parts of the world where essentially you were um, no longer in the midst of a huge protective money riddled, uh, you know, I need 30 agents and and two helicopters above me and then all that. And (laughs) they said, no, 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 no. We would like you to go on your bike (laughs) through the deepest, (laughs) (laughs) carry the president on your back, (laughs) but make sure that he's all safe. Okay. (laughs) Never, never quite that extreme, but I would have done it. Yeah. <laughs> well, not far off, not far off yeah. when you describe some of the experience later on. There was no advanced yeah. team. <laughs> there was no, maybe yeah. someone someone going there and, and just making it up as they go. And and it is that is the scenario that really, really scares me. It's one thing for me to go into an anesthetic case where I know this is an absolute nightmare. I'm absolutely prepared for, I'm loaded for bear, every single tool in my in my skill set, as well as what I practically need is there. And I've got free helpers around and okay, whatever happens, happens. Um, mm-hmm. That is one scenario, but it's the, oh, it's all right. And suddenly the bullets start flying, which was a very real risk for you at any one moment. And when you are Correct. alone, that is 
the very scary, scary thing. How did you deal with the frustration, seeing that you were more or less set up to fail, or at least <laughs> that the chances were so much bigger that you were at risk compared with the the job where you had more backup, so to speak? Yeah. Uh, well, I think you know enough about me to know that I loved it. I loved <laughs> any, you know, tell me, tell me I can't do something. And I'm like, yeah, right. You know, um, I'll show you if I can. And I, that's why I appreciate, you know, for your listeners and I hope they pick up the book. I don't want to tell you what happened with the secret service. because that would take so long, but my life post secret service was far more dangerous, far more interesting, far more challenging, far more pushing me to grow, 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 because being a government worker and having all of those resources is being a secret service agent. It's not to say there weren't challenges because there certainly are on the dangers high. It's the president of the United States or the vice president of the United States or a foreign dignitary. Mm -hmm. But in the case of protecting an ambassador in Lima, Peru, with just one other person, you know, um, you kind of go, really? Like the ambassador was offered all of these, the bells and whistles. And he said, no, that attracts danger. I just want one vehicle and I only want two agents. And us being two agents really meant one was doing day shift and one was doing night shift because he was such a partier. So we would have been on 18 hours or 20 hours. So we decided to start doing night and day. And of course I had the day shift because I didn't want to be hanging out with that guy at night. You know, He'd always say to me, oh, because this was in South America. And my name in Spanish is Maribel. And he's like, oh, Maribel, every day. He'd be like, are you sure you don't want to go out with us? He was very flirtatious with me. He was always trying, like, oh, you want to come in my hotel room? Oh, come on, Maribel, you want to go? I was like, no, you guys go have fun. I'll see you in the morning for our walk. And Mr. Ambassador, right? You're going to get up in the morning and walk, right? I'll see you in the morning. You know, you're going to F with me. I'm going to F with you right back. Because he uh -huh. always blew off his exercise. Uh, uh, <laughs> and that is, guys, uh, for those of you geopolitically challenged, uh, we are talking about a time when the Shining Path had the little, you know, hobby of blowing up uh, people, blowing up, uh, you know, they were, there was a civil war more or less going on in, in those uh, parts of Peru, South America. Yeah. And it, it was brutal. Um, so for someone who says, no, 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 forget it. I don't need, I don't need all that mess. I mean, there yeah. was some sense in it, uh, because ultimately he tried to keep a lower profile, um, because, mm -hmm. you know, it is, uh, if a bomb, um, goes off, it doesn't matter how many people are around you. It doesn't matter. It shreds Correct. you all. Correct. So there was some, some sense there, but it is a strange thing, but I love it here again. You are you're stepping up to the plate. You're actually saying, come on, okay, bring it on. How can I do this yeah. job with the limited resources that I've got or with the restraints that are, that you have got and, mm -hmm. and get the job done in the safest possible way. There is a thrill. And in, in a, oh, sorry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in a country that was very, still is probably, but very chauvinistic. So me asking for things from certain people, they'd look at me like, you know, what do you want? Like, who are you? And I never would say that I was protecting the ambassador. I would just be, say, yeah, I'm working with the ambassador. And I would be really very much appreciated if you could help me with this. I was just learning to be diplomatic, learning to be clever, learning that. And I know you've read this in the book, but 
on any given day, people would say to me, oh, are you the ambassador's daughter? Oh, are you the ambassador's secretary? Oh, and then the ones that had the audacity with a couple had said, oh, are you his affair? And every single time they, they asked me, I, was, I would say, absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. Like, especially the daughter, I'm like, oh, can't you see the resemblance? I was about, you know, seven inches taller than him. <laughs> but for, <laughs> um, it, for me, because some I have had some women say to me, oh, my gosh, weren't you offended? And I said, absolutely not. It was to my advantage. Nobody knew that I was carrying a weapon. And so if anything went to hell, those bought, that would have bought me the extra seconds to save his life and hopefully mine. So exactly. to me, all those things that people can look at negatively, for me, they're positives. Amazing. Because again, my, I put my ego at the door and do my job. And that's what a powerful, powerful move that was to actually uh, don't stand on, no, I am, uh, and, and show a shield or something like that. No, on the contrary, yeah, yeah, you were actually no. playing along. And that, I loved to hear that. You don't have to correct everyone in their opinion. Their opinion is their opinion. It's just, who cares, actually? And, exactly. Oh dear, it is, is that that made me often chuckle and and uh, raised you a little <laughs> bit higher on in my in my respect oh, that you, you were able to jump over your own shadows so many times there. Sure. And you can imagine, especially in South America, and especially the eighties, nineties. Then um, this was a, a bit later on. This was this was still chauvinistic, macho, and this was at, at a time when. When maybe nowadays people say affairs, oh, how, were you not offended? Well, that was the time wow. when Jacques Chirac and, and all the French president, oh, mon amour, this is my wife, <laughs> uh, this is my girlfriend, <laughs> and behind there is the man I dated last night. Um, yeah. you know, it is just, hey, that, that, <laughs> it, is, it was what it was. It was so normal. Exactly. It was so normal. And but you played with you you rolled with the punches, and I think that is the other key message that one needs to learn that that life throws you all kind of challenges, and you sometimes you just have to to grin and assess the situation and see what can what is the best way either out of the situation or how do you deal with the situation, etc. And Correct. sometimes your ego is your worst enemy, mm-hmm. not sometimes probably. In my case, I've got a big ego, and unfortunately, I that has burned me many a times. So okay. I have, I have. Oh, please! I have fucked up many times because <laughs> I wanted to be. No, no, I am who I am, and it doesn't. It, uh, nowadays, I'm far more humble, and oh, I okay. think it gets me. It gets me far further than the old hot hat that I was. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, I, I get that though, but that's how you learned, right? And that's how you grew. Isn't it? Exactly, exactly yeah. right. So at some stage, the, the your diplomatic uh, work changed and you suddenly, uh, nowadays you're here, a very established uh, uh, lecturer, you're established in as a psychologist, and that's beautiful. What made that change? What, what made you choose to, to put the, the clock down? And was it clock? <laughs> what were you shooting, Ashley? Uh, I do shoot a Glock. I shot a lot of different weapons, but yeah. currently I own I own several, (laughs) but my favorite, yeah, my favorite is the Glock still, uh, much to my husband's dismay. Um, 
I have a Glock 17. He's yeah. a, he's very different mentality. My, I'm married to a former Navy SEAL. So he has his <laughs> own opinion on weapons. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, oh, good idea. Good I, idea. That, that's fine. There, there are people who either love them or well, hate them. going to put up with me? Well, there's that. There is that. <laughs> no, no. I needed a very strong man. <laughs> I was about to say, actually, talk about type A personalities there. So out of interest, out of interest now, who is cooking at home? Both. Oh, good, 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 yeah. good. So yeah, not, because not we MREs. eat differently. <laughs> not MREs. Oh, <laughs> what shall Listen, we open today? <laughs> Stefan, during COVID, my husband stocked up on all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so, oh yeah, we have food for about five years. Don't kid yourself. <laughs> and I think... I think knowing him, he really wished it was going to turn into the zombie apocalypse. So, oh. um, you know, <laughs> oh, God. we are so alike. Yeah. We are so alike. You have no idea. It's hilarious. But, uh, maybe we shouldn't say that really on camera and yeah. on, on microphone. <laughs> we need to talk after or another, another time. No, it's the same here. Yeah. We have got... We have got a lot of shiny, shiny things that cut, and we have got a lot of things that go. Oh boom. yeah, uh, and we've oh, got yeah. food for Africa. So it's exactly. But, <laughs> so but you get are, it. Come on, we are living on the Pacific Rim of Fire. So even if there's no zombie apocalypse, I mean, it's just you know <laughs> the next thing the earth shakes and there are no more pharmacies. So it might make sense right. to have some painkillers at home. Right. So oh yeah. It, the worst we're looking at. But again, up. this is actually something. Here we are, um, three very different jobs an elite soldier and a woman, a trailblazer in her own life, uh, and an anesthetist in different parts of the world. Yet we have recognized that to be prepared is such a valuable thing because it mm -hmm. puts you in charge. You take action, therefore, you are a bit more in control. And that is so beautiful. And well, in, you just said it. Remember when you stopped me when I said something, you just said it right there. You took action. Hmm. And what if you think about what happened to a lot of people over the last year and a half is they froze. Hmm. Correct. So that's where a lot of people suffered is, oh, my God, what is this? How long is this going to last? What am I going to do? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I would say to my clients, just do something. Move forward one step, you know. Do a workout with your couch and your chair and, and the floor and whatever. Don't say, oh, I can't work out because my gym's closed. Mm. You can do it in the tiniest of apartments with a staircase or a non-staircase. There's always something you can do. And mentally, you have to do the mental exercises and take action and move forward. Exactly. And that is sort of the key message, isn't it? Guys, mm -hmm. if you think out there, if you think you go to a restaurant and, and you want to have uh, a lovely meal, it's not just that someone whacks some steak in or some beautiful tofu, whatever you're vegetarian, uh, and then just that and a bit of pasta and a bit some rice. That's not how you make a meal. A meal is how you, that you add a bit of sweet, salt, bitter, bit of crunchiness here. So you put mm -hmm. basically all kind of little things into the food to make it a balance. Um, mm. So Tom Yum soup is a, is a, is a um, salvation, uh, Southeast Asian dish. Yeah. And Tom yeah. Yum means perfect balance. Uh, that is actually ah, what that I translated. never knew that. There you go. So the wow. perfect balance. Now, if you accept that when you go to a restaurant, you want the perfect balance in your food and say, wow, this is good food. Would it not make sense that we try to address our life in the same way? way 
that we actually try to figure yeah. out what makes us tick. And inevitably, there are there are there are a number of things. You want the excitement, but you also need the boredom. You want the the highs, but incredibly, if if you only strive for the highs, a Ooh. you don't know that you're anymore there. But also, your system is a bit like 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 a rubber band. If you constantly sure. stretch it up there towards the high, it doesn't work. It needs to come right. back down to a to a level where you can say, "Okay, this is my serenity level." Yeah, inevitably, recharge. indeed, life will drive you down. But equally, mm-hmm. as a rubber band there. So whilst down there, it's not nice to be, and mm-hmm. I've been down there quite a bit. I can mm-hmm. testify to that. It will come back up, and I think that is sort of always the the thing that we sometimes keep forgetting mm-hmm. the, that there is a balance in life and that whatever shit you're going through right now, it will not last equally if you have gone through shit in the past. Well, the past does not Mm. equal the future. So these are all the the kind of facts that we sometimes keep forgetting. And I think your Mm -hmm. your book and your life, Marie Beth, illustrates that so beautifully because there were there were absolute highs there uh, where you thought, wow, did I do that? And then there mm-hmm. were moments where you thought, oh, my God. Uh, and there are quite a few mo- moments that you describe really beautifully in your book. And again, let's not give the whole book away. Um, but it is, <laughs> it is actually, it is really, really nice to see that balance and how you, how you sometimes struggled to make sense of what was happening to you. Uh, some, so at times, you struggled with suggestion from others um mm. how to deal with a scenario for example should you go down the the discrimination uh gender discrimination mm-hmm. thing right. at one stage in your life and you said no mm-hmm. that's not me that's not mm-hmm. what i want to do etc so there are many many aspects to of your book that were actually very revealing so therefore when i gave it a five-star review i meant every word of it so <laughs> thank you really, it was a really great good. review yeah <laughs> no it's good mary beth it was such a fantastic interview. If if people want to find more about you, if they want to connect with you, how can they do that? Yeah, I have a website. Uh, it is drmarybeth.com. So D-R-Marybeth, M-A-R-Y-B-E-T-H.com. And you, know, you can read some of my blogs. You can learn a little bit more about my book. You can contact me. You can, you know, it's it's got lots of little tabs that you can. I even have um, lots of photos of my pot belly pig on there um, that seem to be <laughs> very entertaining these days on social media. Uh, Wilbur is our, our yeah, he's a he's a trip. Uh, we have two cats as well, but everybody loves the pig. So well, exactly, yeah. exactly. Cats are so yesterday. That is, in actual yeah. fact, <laughs> pigs are so gorgeous. And with that, I don't refer to prosciutto ham and things like that. I actually mean uh, the the real life uh, things. So that's great, yeah, Mary Beth. He's a sweetheart. Oh please, uh, you are an amazing woman. And it was a Thank true you. honor to to talk to you today. This was, oh, uh, the honor uh, was mine. Thank you. <laughs> no, it was really, really nice. So thank you so much. We, Because your story yeah. reflected so many facts that might be worthwhile for people to realize. 
and uh, we are all struggling and we are all trying mm -hmm. to make sense of, of some not so good situations. Here sure. you are, you have gone through many of them, you made sense and your way worked for you. So therefore, maybe it is called for some others who found themselves in similar situations to think, okay, how do I go about that? Clock seven sure. or rather something. No, no, I'm kidding. kidding, kidding. <laughs> That's typically not a good good way out of a situation. So no. Trust me, no. I'm the hothead. So no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, no. So, no. Anyhow, Mary, Mary, it uh, Mary Beth, it was an absolute beautiful interview. Thank you so much. And you guys you out so there, much. look after yourself. Don't give up. There is hope. There is help. Honestly. Don't give up because however dark it looks at the moment, you can take mm. steps to get yourself out of that. You will be able to dread water and things will change. I can assure you that. So therefore, look after yourself. Awesome. Indeed. Look after yourself. Bye. I